From CAFE and WNYC Studios, welcome to Stay Tuned. I'm Preet Bharara. I was in the room with Medvedev in his meetings with Obama, and I was in the room with Putin in his meetings with Obama. And there was a difference in the way that those two Russian leaders saw the world. That's Michael McFaul, who was in the room where it happened. He was the U.S. ambassador to Russia during the Obama administration. I speak to him this week about who holds power in Russia, the tit-for-tat diplomatic expulsions, and what it's like to have breakfast with Vladimir Putin. Turns out it involves a lot of caviar. That's coming up. But first, let's get to your questions. Hi, Preet. This is Patrick Cronin calling from Springfield, Virginia. Uh, my question is, today I saw that uh, Donald Trump is going after Jeff Bezos' businesses using the post office to try to cut off um, access to cheap delivery services because of a story that appeared in the Washington Post. Isn't this behavior of going at using the government to go after somebody you perceive as an enemy very similar to what Nixon had done? Thanks for your question, Patrick. Uh, you know, I don't know if it's similar to what Nixon did, largely what Nixon did, the, the biases he had and the enemies he sought to punish, he did that quietly behind closed doors. So I don't know if it's better or worse that Donald Trump does it in front of millions of people on live television and by tweeting from his bed from time to time. Uh, he does it pretty much out in the open. In some ways, that makes it worse because I think it coarsens dialogue, it diminishes the office of the president, and it hurts the institutions of democracy. So what's going on here? Jeff Bezos owns personally, not through Amazon, but personally, the Washington Post. And the Washington Post, from time to time, like virtually every other newspaper media outlet in the country and in the world, will write stories that sometimes put the president and his administration in a poor light. I have no particular love for Jeff Bezos, although I do order things from Amazon from time to time, like most Americans. Uh, but I do think, and I join in the chorus of people who say, it is an outrageous thing for a sitting president who is himself a businessman and who is himself someone who should understand the free and open operation of business in a country that's supposed to be capitalist to come down on the side of one business over another, whether it's a media organization or anything else. And you know, people should not cry a river for the richest man on earth, I believe, Jeff Bezos. But people should be concerned about the tone it sets and about the precedent being set when the president decides, based on uh, you know personal irritation against a you know a very well respected, distinguished, award winning news organization, that when he attacks a company that a lot of people get a lot of you know satisfaction from, that that's wrong, that's bad, and it should stop. Uh, and Patrick, you and others may have seen that I I tweeted in jest about this issue in the last couple of days, and I said something like, you know, what if Jeff Bezos decided to buy Twitter with the change in his pocket and then shut down President Trump's Twitter account. And that, you know, a lot of people have been responding to that. And I just want to make clear to folks who take Twitter way too seriously, I wasn't being serious. I do think it's an interesting you know, thought experiment when you have a president who is abusing his office by singling out a particular citizen who owns a paper that he doesn't like to think, well, I don't know, what's the way in which that citizen might be able to fight back? Donald Trump doesn't restrain himself. He's a person who says you fight back however dirty you need to fight back. And he has employed the people who have learned that lesson and have advanced his, his cause and his candidacy in that way. So the thought experiment is what if everybody treated Donald Trump in the underhanded way that he treats them? That's all. So here's a question from Twitter user Steph Kasavaugh, who writes... Is it the case that a federal prosecutor could tell a defense attorney their client is a subject when they are actually a target to protect their case? So, Steph, thanks for your question. There's a lot of confusion, even among lawyers, of what the subtle distinction may be between being a subject versus a target. And there are guidelines that internally the Justice Department uses. The bottom line is many, many people who are being investigated are not designated as targets until very, very late, if ever. I think the important point to appreciate here is that even though Trump's lawyers have been saying for a long time that Trump is not under investigation in any way, shape, or form, if this report is true and if common sense prevails, that is absolutely false. 
if you were a subject of an investigation, you were someone who at any time can become a person who has criminal exposure and could be charged. From everything we know about the people who are being interviewed, the subject matter of what the inquiry is about, including the potential for obstruction, and now the latest news that the president's team has been advised that he is in fact a quote-unquote subject, means that President Trump is personally under investigation. Whether he will ever be charged or become a target on the way to being charged is unclear, uh, although I have a view on that. But 100% it is the case that President Trump is being investigated by special counsel Bob Mueller. Now, there are also reports in various media outlets in the last couple of days that Bob Mueller is considering writing a report. Now, the regulations under which Bob Mueller serves provide that he is supposed to do a confidential report to the Deputy Attorney General of the United States, who is Rod Rosenstein. What's the significance of that? Well, a lot of people are trying to read the tea leaves, and if it's true that there has been a discussion about writing a report, I think it underscores what I have been saying for a long time. I think I've said this on the podcast, but I've certainly said it elsewhere. And this is going to be disappointing to some folks, but I believe it to be true. And that is, I don't see a circumstance in which Bob Mueller, given how orthodox he is, how traditional he is in conceiving of the role of the United States Attorney uh, and now special counsel, that he is going to see fit, no matter what amount of evidence there is, to indict a sitting president. And the reason for that is there is a prevailing legal opinion penned by the Office of Legal Counsel some years ago that engages in a legal analysis that says, for various reasons that we don't have to go into here, that a sitting president cannot be criminally charged while he is in office. He can be civilly pursued, and that's why you're hearing all this business about uh, civil lawsuits. And those principles were made clear some time ago when Paula Jones sued President Clinton. So civilly, while he's a sitting president, Donald Trump can be pursued and can be asked to sit for a deposition. But there is legal authority, and I think the consensus legal authority, even though some people differ with it, and you see those people on TV from time to time, but the consensus legal authority is that you can indict a sitting president. Now, Bob Mueller may personally have a different view. And his lawyers may decide there's a decent argument to indict a sitting president. The problem with that is knowing who Bob Mueller is, and I, I, I will confess it, I would be of the same view. If you're going to take such a serious, extraordinary action of deciding to charge a sitting commander-in-chief, you don't want to hang your hat on a minority legal position. You want to make sure especially given how polarized we all are on, on both sides of the fence with respect to the Mueller investigation, you want to make sure that you have a lot of support, consensus support, even overwhelming legal support, even if people don't like what you're doing, but overwhelming legal support for the position you're taking, especially when the stakes and consequences could not be higher, perhaps in legal history. So the fact that Bob Mueller is thinking about and even talking about uh, the writing of a report suggests to me further that he's not thinking about indictment. So there is some question still about whether or not a report that sets forth you know, a, a good amount of, of evidence on, on either side of an issue, if it will ever see the light of day. What I think it means that the president will likely not be indicted, and what I think it means that this will be handed off most likely to Congress and to members of both parties, is that the decision about the conduct of the president and his advisors and his associates what should happen with them will end up being a political question. And it will end up being decided as an initial matter, I think, in the House of Representatives. And if folks decide not to make such a report public, members of Congress, if you're a chairman of a particular committee, you could subpoena the report. Now, we've seen how some Republicans have stood in line shoulder to shoulder with Donald Trump, particularly the, the House Intel Committee, which we've talked about many times on this show. But there's a possibility that Congress will you know, act regardless of that partisan interest. And there's also a possibility that in a few months' time, Congress will change hands and be led by the other party, in which case the chairman of all those committees become Democrats. And they, I predict, would have a different view about what should or should not become public. Remember that whole debate about release the memo? Well, the debate about whether or not you, know, you should release the report uh, would dwarf that, I think. Here's another question from Twitter. This one from Twitter user Immature Adult. I appreciate your self-awareness. And the question is, Preet, in your professional experience, what percentage of lawyers that have a lawyer are convicted? Well, in my professional experience, most people who get charged with a crime uh, get convicted. The conviction rate is extremely high, particularly in the federal system. 
and from my recollection of my office, also extremely high. From time to time, members of the bar are charged with offenses, and I don't know that the conviction rate is any lower or higher. It probably is around the same. So I imagine one reason you're asking the question is because we have news this week of the first defendant who has actually had a sentence imposed on him in the Mueller investigation, and that's lawyer Alex Vanderswan, who was convicted of lying to the FBI by virtue of his guilty plea and was sentenced by the judge to 30 days in prison. And so some people have asked the question, is that a fair sentence or not? Look, uh, lying to the FBI is a serious crime. We charged it on a regular basis because if people can't be trusted to tell the truth in an investigation, then an investigation goes nowhere and you have to set, I think, a policy of treating that seriously. That said, the federal sentencing guidelines for that kind of crime are not particularly high. So when judges decide what kind of sentence to impose, they consider a lot of different things. Uh, They consider the character of the defendant. They consider sometimes family circumstances. They consider whether or not there are prior convictions on the part of the person. And so the judge, I believe in this case, set forth the reasoning about why a 30-day sentence thought that the crime was serious enough that some jail time was necessary. I've seen a lot of people just get probation after a single count conviction of lying to the FBI. I've also seen people get substantial jail time. So if you're thinking about where this fits on the spectrum of sentences, I'd say it's not a particularly significant sentence, but it's not a slap on the wrist either. And I think the judge was trying to send a message that if you lie to the government in connection with an investigation, you can expect to go to jail. And for a person like Vanderswan, who was a lawyer at an elite firm, never been in trouble before, jail is jail and nobody wants to go. Hi, Preet. This is Sarah Little calling from San Ramon, California. Love your show. On the lighter side of life, I'm wondering if you can settle a debate I'm having with my colleague about the greatest lawyer movie of all time. My vote goes to my cousin Vinny, and his vote goes to the verdict. You can pick another movie if you want to, but um, if you could settle this between the two of us, I'd appreciate it. Thanks, and keep doing your good work. Sarah from California, thank you for your incredibly profound question. This is a debate that has raged on in American law, culture, from time immemorial. So let me answer it this way. Uh, My Cousin Vinny is an amazing movie. Hilari- I just watched it recently, again, for maybe the 12th time. The Verdict, also a very good movie. So if I was going to judge as between those two, I'd go with My Cousin Vinny. Folks in the studio here did not know how I was going to answer that question, and they are now high-fiving each other. But I will say... I'll pick uh, an old-fashioned movie that I think is the best legal movie, and there are many great ones, including A Few Good Men and so many others. But as I've said for a long time, one of the reasons I became a lawyer was I read a play when I was in junior high school called Inherit the Wind. And it's about the monkey trials, the Scopes trials in the South, about whether or not a teacher should go to prison for teaching evolution in school. Uh, And it stars Spencer Tracy in the Clarence Darrow figure, But for me, pound for pound, Inherit the Wind, even though it began as a play in movie form, is the finest legal drama of all time. My guest this week is Michael McFall. He was the ambassador to Russia during President Obama's second term. I'm so glad we're having him on this week because he's one of the world's foremost experts on Russia. He even has a new book coming out called From Cold War to Hot Peace. Russia's been in the news a lot and lately for something new. The U.S. expelled Russian diplomats and closed the consulate, so then the Russian government expelled American diplomats and closed one of our consulates, which makes this, I think, the perfect week to talk to someone who served as a diplomat in Moscow. We talk about why embassies matter, what meetings with Putin are like, and also what it's like to know you're under constant surveillance by the Russian government. That's coming up. Stay tuned. Hey, everyone. On April 26, I'll be recording a live episode of Stay Tuned at the world-famous Apollo Theater in Harlem. My guest is the amazing Bassem Youssef, a world-renowned comedian known as the John Stewart of the Arab world. He used to be a surgeon. Now he's a satirist. He's hilarious, smart, witty, and has an unbelievably courageous story. You don't want to miss it. Get tickets for Stay Tuned through Ticketmaster or ApolloTheater.com slash calendar. And... Because I love my podcast listeners most of all, for a limited time, get $20 off each ticket 
when you enter code PREET20. That's PREET20. I'll see you there. Ambassador McFall, really great to have you on the show. Thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. So there's news about how Russia is expelling uh, scores of American and other Western nations diplomats following America's decision to expel scores of Russian diplomats. Uh, you know, it, it's a never-ending cycle. But if I could just get your top-line reaction to the latest news, what, what would it be? Well, I think it's tragic, but expected. Vladimir Putin always responds to any actions that we have taken over the last several years. Sometimes he responds asymmetrically, by the way. At least the good news here is that it is symmetric. And they are, as you just said, expelling 60, I think, American diplomats. They're also closing our consulate in St. Petersburg, which I find uh, especially tragic. And what I think people should understand is that when we close consulates, we're not punishing business people or in the case of closing Seattle, Russian oligarchs. We're, we're making it harder for everyday citizens of the United States and Russia to travel back and forth. And I believe that's not in America's national interest. So I, I would have preferred that we not go after the consulates. But, you know, this was to be expected. Was it also tragic that the Americans closed the consulate in Seattle then? Tragic for that's probably too strong a word. Um, to somehow impede Russian intelligence gathering in the United States of America is always a good idea. Right. And there's no question that that consulate was used for intelligence purposes as well, just like all the other consulates and embassy are used. But I would have preferred that we expelled those who we believe to be Russian intelligence officers based in Seattle and still kept the consulate open so that we could, you know, still keep open the channels of communication and interaction between our societies. Um, and that's good work. You said a minute ago that the Russians always respond and sometimes asymmetrically, but they didn't last December when Barack Obama was still the president yes. and, and took act, retaliatory action because of the interference in the American election and expelled right. diplomats. And the Russians did not do anything, correct? Yes, they were waiting for a better deal. What was that? <laughs> <What's> <laughs> That's your... for sure. And, <laughs> and, and what, do you, what do you think went on there? Someone like Vladimir Putin, who has to project strength and power, even if he doesn't have it, always responds, as you say. So, so what happened back yes. in December? Well, I'm glad you brought that, pointed that in, out, because that was, that was extraordinary. Um, everybody expected that there would be a, a tit-for-tat response, and there wasn't. And I think it's pretty clear that the, the Trump campaign folks and the then-transition folks had communicated to the Kremlin that just wait a minute, hold on, don't respond. Once we get to the White House, we're going to reverse these things. We don't know the full details yet. We need to wait for the, you know, the investigation to, to be completed. But I think the evidence that we see so far already, particularly the conversations that happened between then General Flynn, Michael Flynn, who was a, a campaign advisor and transition advisor to President-elect Trump at the time, and Ambassador Kislyak, it looks pretty clear that they were signaling, if you just wait till we get there, we're going to reverse this negative trend. Obviously, they did not do that. You know, that did not happen. But I think that's what they were promising Putin at the time. I want to get back to interactions between Russia and America. But let's take a step back and talk about your career a little bit. So one of the things you did most recently, as our listeners now know, is you were the ambassador from America to Russia from 2012 to 2014. Give us a sense of you know, what is that like to be an American in that position in Russia? Well, let's back up even further just to give some context and, and remind your listeners that for most of my life, I've been an academic. Uh, I've been teaching at Stanford for a long time. I've known Russia. I've lived in Russia and the Soviet Union many times. And you speak, so you speak Russian. I speak Russian. It's, it's not as good now as it used to be because I'm on the sanctions list. So as, I as, no as am I. Well, to welcome to the club. Yes. So, in fact, this is the longest period I've been out of Russia. I've, I haven't been there for four years now, going all the way back to 1983 when I took my first trip to Leningrad, then the Soviet Union, to study Russian as a student. I got involved in, in the government because I joined up with the Obama campaign one of the first foreign policy advisors. And so when he won, I joined his team at the White House. I served at the National Security Council. 
from 2009 to 2012. And when I started to make noises about coming back to Stanford, the president said I couldn't leave at that time because, and this may sound shocking today, but at that time, we were cooperating with the Russians on a whole host of issues. And his argument to me was, how can you leave now? We have so much momentum. But by the time I got there in January 2012, that momentum had ended. Vladimir Putin was on his way back as president, replacing a person that that was more cooperative with our administration, President Dmitry Medvedev. And by the time I got there in 2012, we were already in a downward spiral. And the main cause, there are lots of causes and noises, but the main contentious issue at the time was that there were demonstrations against Vladimir Putin and his regime at the time. This is back in late 2011, early 2012. And He blamed us for that. He said that we were supporting those demonstrators, that we were fomenting revolution. And by the time I got there in January of 2012, he accused me personally of being sent by Barack Obama to coordinate and support the political opposition to him. Let me ask you a personal question. Uh, It's a personal and official question. When you were representing the United States in Russia, either as the ambassador or otherwise, Do you believe that you were under constant surveillance, personally and electronically? It's not a belief. It's a fact. The answer is yes. And and how do you know that's a fact? Those are probably things I can't talk about. (laughs) But there's something Uh, you can. I mean, that's um, well understood by everyone. Well, just, just to be clear, you know, Russia is one of the countries in the world that has the greatest capability to gather that kind of information about anybody and everybody. And I assume that every email I sent on an unclassified system was being read. I assume that every phone call I made on an unclassified phone was being listened to. I assume that every conversation I had in my house, it's called Spasso House, uh, was being recorded. And there were very few places and uh, interactions that I could have living in that country that I knew were not being recorded. And you're trained to understand that, right, as a, as a diplomat. We, we train our people, I assume the same is true in China and maybe every country to, to different degrees. And you're, yes. and, you're, and you're trained to be careful in your communications, right? Correct. That's exactly right. So, but but what, what, what is that like as a person? Well, there are special rooms at the embassy uh, that we have reserved for classified conversations. And I want to get to those in a second and, and, and test whether or not we, we have great faith in them. But you know, when you when you were living in Russia for a period of time, you had your family there, right? Correct. Yeah. And so what what is that like just as a person who is there in an official capacity, but then, you know, you go home, you have dinner with your family, you talk to your kids, to have them understand that everything you're saying is being listened to, how does, how does, that, how does that change the conversation at the dinner table? Uh, well, it's difficult. I don't want to, I don't want to dress it up in any other way. I mean, being ambassador was fantastic. Let's get to that in a right. minute. Uh, the a job nice big house, itself... Right? You have a beautiful house. Caviar for breakfast every day. We didn't have any caviar, but, <laughs> but you know, the, the main part of the job, just I'll get to the surveillance in a minute, yeah. but, you know, your main job is to represent what I think is the greatest country in the world in Russia uh, and to drive around with the American flag on your car to be the president's representative and the people's representative of, of the United States of America. Uh, I just love that that feeling, and I miss that feeling. Secondly, a part that I think people, a lot of people might not understand about the job, uh, one part of the job is the diplomacy between our governments over very difficult issues. You know, for me at the time, issues like Syria, Edward Snowden, and, and so the bilateral relationship, they closed down the U.S. Agency for International Development. For instance, on my watch, they... Uh, made illegal the adoption of Russian children right. by American parents. That was heart-wrenching. So that's, that's my job with the Russian government, and that was hard. But the other part of the job is to enhance and, and promote connections between our societies. So, you know, I hosted the NBA one day mm-hmm. at my house. Uh, they haven't been to my house here in Palo Alto, uh, but I, I, you know, my sons are big basketball fans. So we had half a, you know, we had a dozen NBA uh, players at our house. Does the ambassador's residence have a basketball court? 
they didn't before we arrived, okay. but they did when we came. Okay. <laughs> uh, we put in a basketball hoop. Okay. Um, and we also had a gym at the embassy, so we played we played basketball there as well. But we hosted, you know, uh, Herbie Hancock. You know, I got to invite 500 of my closest friends in Russia to come here. One of the greatest jazz musicians that, you know, and he was an idol of mine when I grew up. So if you ever get a chance to be ambassador, take it. <laughs> well, I'd have to get off that list first. Well, yeah, correct. Yeah, there are a few countries. So, okay, so, so back to the conversation at the dinner table. Everyone's yes. sitting around, you're asking, you know, your, your basketball-loving kids about their homework. Uh, or about you know what they're doing that evening, but yes. you know people are listening. So is that, do you just have stilted conversation, or you just decide we're going to be ourselves and let the chips fall where they may? You know, we were all briefed on it. Uh, you know, we we're even briefed that if my wife and I need to have a serious argument, we had a special <laughs> room for that. <laughs> you go to uh, a, you go to a skiff. Yeah, we went to. They, that's exactly right. Uh, thankfully, we did not have to use that. Uh, uh, facility. I would imagine um, that helps to break to break the cycle of uh, of, of relationship anger. You know, like, here we are in a skiff. It's kind of funny. But that is to to be back to your earlier point. That is the seriousness with which our government goes to to try to deal in this very hostile environment. And you know, it's not just me; it's our, all of our employees. Back then, we had fifteen hundred employees right. uh, are dealing with this environment all the time, and. It does create psychological trauma for people, and it is difficult, and sometimes people make mistakes. Right. No, it's hard service. But, but do you think it's only – that surveillance only applies to official representatives of the United States or – and you'll, you'll see where I'm going with this – or do you believe the Russian government on a regular basis, like other countries, also engages in the similar types of surveillance of significant Americans, business people, for example, who are not in government? So the Russian government has that capability – and I think that's the, th the hard part for people to think about. Just they have invested enormous resources in that intelligence gathering capability. How they use it and against whom they use it, that's a different matter of which I, I do not have specific information. Mm -hmm. And I know where you're going. And, and I don't have any specific information about that, even though Donald Trump did come to Russia when I was the ambassador. But do they have that capability? The answer to that is yes. And therefore, anybody traveling to Russia, including private officials, uh, should be briefed about that capability and, and should come prepared to, to know that their activities could be monitored right. at all times. And the, same, and the same is true with China. I mean, there are certain countries we worry about more, like China, for example. But what, what's, yes. what is the point, for people to understand, of a, a foreign government exercising, if they choose to, the capability to monitor, surveil, make recordings of uh, non-official visits by private citizens from America? Is it, is it to have something, you know, in the bank if later it becomes necessary? Is it just to, to gather intelligence to understand America? You know, I did multiple spy cases and you know about them uh, yeah. where people were doing not much more, in some cases, not much more than trying to understand American culture and business and academia right. and politics so they could meddle in the right. election in an intelligent, uh, non-identifiable way. What is, right. what was, what, what's the reason for keeping an eye on people who come into Russia? I think all of the above. First and foremost, gathering intelligence. Second, gathering kapramat, a Russian word that we now use. Uh, that most certainly is part of the, the, the FSB's toolbox. Third... On occasion, and this happened to me, uh, sometimes they would reveal that ability just to, to put you on notice. Um, and I had, for instance, a conversation recorded. I was at a Marriott Hotel uh, briefing the U.S.-Russia Business Council Executive Committee. Uh, and they released a piece of that tape and spliced it in a certain way to make it sound sinister and put it out just as a kind of shot across the bow to remind me. Uh, that they were everywhere. And from time to time, um, and this was some of the more, most difficult moments of my time serving as ambassador, they would follow me in a way that we would know we were being followed. Uh, you know, the FSB, they're good at their trade, uh, and they can follow you and monitor you in a way that you would not know. Right. But then they would turn up the heat sometimes. And, you know, I had a security detail. Um, you know, so I had people trained to identify threats to me 
And every now and then, the, they would show up at my son's soccer game in a way that we would all know that they, they were there. Um, it was it sort was, of an intimidation tactic? Yes. There's no doubt in my mind. Uh -huh. And it, it most all, almost always involved my children because they knew that that was a way to get under my skin. And, and they, their psychological assessment of me in that regard was correct. John Brennan, who was not one known to hyperbole and saying outrageous things, who was the director of the CIA and the national security advisor under Obama, he recently, and I'm paraphrasing here, I don't have it in front of me, he recently said that he is... He seems to have come to the conclusion that Vladimir Putin and Russia uh, may have something on Donald Trump. Do you have a reaction to that? Well, I also work with John Brennan. I worked with him for three years at the White House. And then when he was at CIA, I was at the embassy. I have a great deal of respect for him. Uh, he is not prone to hyperbole, as you just said. That is not his nature. Um, and so those comments really did get my attention. And... And one other dimension, I'm just speculating, and I don't, I don't want to get ahead of my skis or Mueller's skis, sure. but, but I do know, given the work I used to do, that another dimension of Russian foreign policy is to use economic tools uh, to create leverage. They do that all the time. Um, there's no such – there is such a thing as a private uh, sector. That's not right. But there are many instruments of, of economic activity – that are actually instruments of Russian influence, uh, particularly, uh, you know, companies that are either owned or controlled by the Kremlin, of which many of their largest companies and banks are. Uh, they do that in other countries, that I know for sure, and, you know, that's why we need to know whether or not they were using those instruments of influence with respect to what happened in our country. Do you think it may be true that Vladimir Putin and Russian officials have something compromising on Donald Trump. And, and, to, and I don't know. Do you have other explanations? What explanations do you have? And people speculate about this all the time for the dynamic of President Trump never saying a negative word about Vladimir Putin. Well, I don't know what material they may have on him, uh, but I want to know the truth. And that's why we need the Mueller investigation to finish its work. Uh, I think all Americans who care about national security should want to see the conclusion of a thorough investigation. I, I agree with that. With respect to the, the second question, uh, you know, it's one I think about and talk about often. Uh, there may be these other explanations, right, of lev some leverage. But I do think there's a more simple explanation, a, a hypothesis, right? And I, I just want to keep putting this in the realm of hypotheses as, a, as, a social, as an academic, because we just don't know the end of this story yet. But an alternative hypothesis is that he believes in his own power of persuasion and his own ability to engage with leaders like himself. And he believes that if he can just have some face time with Vladimir Putin, he can turn around this bilateral relationship. Uh, I think he's wrong about that. I think he's naive about that. I think he mixes up ends versus means when it comes to diplomacy and foreign policy. The goal of American foreign policy towards Russia and, frankly, any other country should always be defined as concrete American national interests. And the means for achieving them might be diplomacy and, you know, uh, happy talk, or but it might also be coercion, it might also be sanctions, it, all, it might also be isolation. The goal of U.S. foreign policy should never be, quote-unquote, a good or better relationship with Putin, because what, what good does that do? Uh, and I think, uh, I think Trump has that mixed up in his head. What was your take, you know, person-to-person -person on Vladimir Putin? What kind, of a, what kind of a person he is as opposed to what kind of a leader is he? So I actually first met Vladimir Putin in the spring of 1991, which is a kind of an amazing fact. Uh, he, at the time, was the deputy mayor uh, in St. Petersburg to a reformist, Western-leaning uh, mayor named Anatoly Subchak. And I was there uh, with a democracy promotion organization called the National Democratic Institute, uh, interacting with the newly elected officials 
at the regional level to talk about how do democracies uh, adopt budgets. So that was the first time I encountered him. I've, I've seen him over the years, uh, but of course, I got to see him up close in my years at the White House and as ambassador. Um, and the difference, I would say, over time, uh, I think it's wrong to talk about Putin as having the same set of views all the way through. I, I think his views changed, and I think they hardened over time, becoming more anti-Western and anti-American. Uh, Vladimir Putin, by the way, in 2000, 2000, for instance, even suggested that Russia should join NATO. Um, uh, yeah, <laughs> this was not a guy right. in the early years that was uh, hell-bent on restarting the Cold War. But over time, a couple of things happened. One is, you know, he's been in power now for almost two decades. He stopped listening to people around him. And that was most certainly true in our meetings with him. Uh, he carried himself as somebody who knew everything, who had been around the world, who was, you know, on the global stage for longer than anybody, and had a kind of arrogance, therefore, uh, in the way that he dealt with, uh, you know, President Obama. And by the way, I was in the room not just with Obama, but but other leaders of our administration who would meet with Putin from time to time. And, is he, and he talks down to folks? He's just very dismissive. He, you know, he, he doesn't listen very closely. So, so when a world leader um, is being that way, because I think I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, because we read about these things in the paper and we hear what the readouts are and they're very formal they're a little less formal. Sometimes when, when Trump has meetings with foreign leaders, we hear about them from the foreign leaders, not from our own press or from our own White House. But I, I'm just wondering if you give a sense to people of, of what it's like in the room. Is, is, there, is it tense? Do people try to, try to break the ice? Does Putin make a joke? When someone is being dismissive, do the American folks, Obama included, uh, dress him down? Like, what, what's the dynamic interpersonally? Well, the... The dynamic between Putin and Obama also changed over the years. Uh, the first meeting we had with Putin, he was prime minister. Uh, we went to Moscow in the summer of 2009, July. Uh, we went out to Putin's dacha, to his country estate, uh, had breakfast with him. It was a very elaborate breakfast, by the way. And then we moved outside to the patio uh, to continue the conversation. What was your breakfast? It, uh, various different kinds of eggs. There was some various caviar, different kinds some... of eggs. Were they all? Were they all? Were they all chicken eggs? Uh, <laughs> I don't remember. Okay. Uh, but it was very colorful. I do remember that. And we worried were some of the there were there were many forms of caviar, not just one. And I remember us joking, um, "Is this legal for us to be eating this?" But um, with <laughs> do you respect, think, do you think to... that question still gets asked <laughs> by American <laughs> I, I delegations? Know. Okay. Uh, I'm not going to comment okay, on that. Okay, um, fair enough. Right, uh, so, you, so you had your gigantic caviar-laden breakfast, and then? Yes. I mean, I barely ate because I was taking notes furiously, right? I'm, I was a note-taker for that event. But here's how I describe that event. The first hour, literally the entire first hour, Vladimir Putin went on and on and on about all the mistakes that the Bush administration had made in U.S.-Russian relations. He had a real chip on his shoulder. Uh, by the way, he had a soft spot for President Bush. Hmm. And he went out of his way to say it was his administration, not President Bush. And that gets to something, his theory of American uh, foreign policymaking is that he firmly believes that there is this deep state mm -hmm. in America. Uh, people like you uh, and at the CIA <laughs> I'm a podcast and at the Pentagon. Guy. Yeah. yeah, not well, back in, your, back in the day, <laughs> the deep state, the, the Siliviki, as they call them, the power ministries uh, that, that they have in their system. He, he believes that our system is run in the same way and that they really kind of drive policy. And by the way, that, that is still his theory about what is happening in the Trump era today, that, that Trump's trying to do the right thing and it's this deep state that is blocking him. But, but, but he that, went that on and on and on about... Sense in the sense, I'm sorry, it doesn't make a lot of sense. If he is willing to admit that, there are, that different administrations have a different approach, unless he says everything is constant at all times, it, it has to be driven a little bit by the folks at the top. He, he, did he mean the Bush administration failed Russia because of the deep state alone or because of other people like Dick Cheney and others who are not part of the deep state, but are just, you know, in his view, bad advisors to Bush. 
So he would not make the distinction you would you just made. He would say that Cheney is part of the the you know the elite that come in and out of government, but basically have the same views, anti-Russian views, and and in particular, he's got this really kooky idea. Well, cookies may be a strong word, but a very strong view that that we go out and we use overt and covert power to overthrow regimes that we don't like. Um, and let's be honest, it, you know, there's there's empirical data to support that hypothesis about American policy over the last 70 years. And he laid out that theory of American power to Barack Obama and and when they got to Iraq and he went on and on about how that was a terrible mistake and you guys don't understand the Middle East and this was highly destabilizing, uh, President Obama just very quietly said at the end of that long soliloquy, he said, I agree. He said, I was against that war long before it was initiated. And that got Putin's attention to your point that right, you just right. made. Right, That's disarming. Because he was like, hey, wait a minute, you're the Americans. Right. And he's like, no, I'm, we change. We have different views. And that, that was a curious kind of twist in the conversation where, that we then ended with, you know, as we walked to our cars after about three or four hours of conversation, you know, the, the feeling I had about Putin was like, well, hey, maybe this guy is different. Maybe he will change things. Um, I'm, I'm going to leave an open question there. He also said, you know, go deal with Medvedev because he's in charge of foreign policy. I'm not in charge of foreign policy. Been there, done that with you guys. I'm not going to go down that road again. Because remember, after September 11th, he did reach out to President Bush. They, they did bond over a common struggle to fight global terrorism. And after, you know, trying to do that with Bush, he feels that Bush and his administration betrayed him. So his attitude in 2009 was, okay, maybe you're different. Knock yourself out. Go work with the new guy, the new young guy who's in the Kremlin. And I think that when 2011 happened and when the Arab Spring happened and when the United States intervened militarily again in a foreign country, just like we had done back in Iraq in 2003, and in his view, using covert power in Georgia in 2003 and Ukraine in 2004, the so-called color revolutions, that's when Putin said, uh-huh, the Americans, they're just behaving just like they always do, uh, and therefore we, therefore we have to push back. And I want to underscore, this: his theory is flawed. We did not overthrow regimes in Georgia in 2003 and 2004. But if you have a suspicious mind, as Putin does, about us, uh, you connect dots right. that may not actually exist. And, and that most certainly is his theory about American foreign policy. Assume uh, Vladimir Putin was out of the picture in this period, 2011, 2012, either because he didn't want to come back into the same degree of power or he just was not around anymore. How is the world different today? In other words, the other way of asking that is, how important is Vladimir Putin himself as a personality, as a person, as a leader, to the relationship between Russia, the United States, and other countries, and the predicament we find ourselves in today? How much of it is driven by him versus structural, you know, cultural, political, strategic factors? You know, that's exactly the theme of the course I'm teaching. Oh, this well. Just so, you know, and that will be the, you just articulated <laughs> what will be the final examination so why don't question. You, why don't you tell your students what the correct uh, answer is? Well, I, um, so it's agents versus structures, right? right? And, yeah. and in many ways, uh, most of the fundamental questions in social science is about that tension. Yeah, people will be asking, asking the same question about Trump and America in some ways. Correct. And, and you know, I lean on the agent side. Uh, and on the regime side. So it matters, individuals matter, but it also matters what regime governs inside a country, whether it's democratic or autocratic. Uh, I don't think it's a coincidence of American history that all of our enemies have been autocratic countries um, and some of our closest allies have been democratic countries. But with respect to your specific question, I want to talk about two periods of history, not just one. But let's take the first one that you mentioned first, which is 2011. Had Dmitry Medvedev stayed on as president for whatever reason, 
I do think the dynamics would have been different. Uh, I don't think uh, Dmitry Medvedev, for instance, would have ordered the annexation of Crimea. Uh, he valued his relationship with the West. He fundamentally saw Russia's long-term future as being part of the West, not being antagonistic to the West. And I can tell you, I sat down with, I was in the room with Medvedev in his meetings with Obama, and I was in the room with Putin in his meetings with Obama. And there was a difference in the way that those two Russian leaders saw the world. Now, Medvedev's problem was that he wasn't strong enough or ambitious enough to really push his agenda of modernization. And remember, at the end of the day, Vladimir Putin was always the central decision maker, even when Medvedev was president. But I do think individuals mattered, and had Medvedev been around, the trajectory would have been different. Does Vladimir Putin fear anyone? That's an interesting question. I mean, I think he respects President Xi and probably fears China. Uh, He would not never say that publicly, but in the long run, that is a country that I think is going to have increasingly conflictual relationships with Russia. Uh, I think he uh, fears, respects uh, the CIA. Um, I think he sometimes overestimates their capabilities, but he also understands their formidable capabilities. Um, and I think he also, you know, more generally thinks about America's tremendous powers in ways that makes him uneasy. Um, what about internally in, within Russia? Does he fear any political foes? Well, internally, I think he's got a very complicated balancing act he has between the power ministries uh, on the one hand, so the Russian intelligence services, the, the Ministry of the Interior, the Ministry of Defense, Uh, who he needs on his side uh, on the one hand, and on the other hand, the the market reformers or or pro-market people, market reformers is too strong a word, but the people that basically manage the the Russian economy, those are all people that that are more pro-Western than the the intelligence services. Mm -hmm. And that is a difficult balancing act. And it's not always clear to me that the Siloviki those power ministries are always acting directly in accordance with what Putin, Putin wants. Uh, so whether he controls them or whether he control, you know, what the power dynamics there, I do not think are stable. And I think he has to worry about those, those power ministries in particular. Ambassador, we have, we have so much to talk about. We could have gone hours more. In closing, would you like to say something to the listeners in Russian? Uh, <laughs> So the quick and dirty translation yes, thank is, you very much. Uh, thank you for very much. <laughs> Sorry for my accent. I hope one day to be able to t- return to Russia and speak in Russian with Russians there. Ambassador McFall, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for having me. So as I sit here in the studio to record the final bit of the show, it is Wednesday, April 4th, 2018, which marks an incredibly tragic anniversary in American history. As you all know, Martin Luther King, perhaps the greatest civil rights leader the country has ever seen and may well ever see, was gunned down, a victim of an assassination on this date 50 years ago, dead at age 39, younger than anyone can possibly imagine. And there's nothing I can say at this time that would be more eloquent, more poignant, would resonate more than the words of King himself. And you may have seen versions of this clip his final speech the day before he died uh, on other outlets and on television and on the internet. But in case you haven't, I wanted to make sure you heard it here because it's, it's searing and it's important. And as everyone commemorates and honors King's memory and legacy in their own way, think about the ways in which 
his dream has still not come true. How there's so much work still to be done in America, no matter what side of the political divide you're on. And so I leave you with an excerpt of Martin Luther King's final speech. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Ambassador Michael McFall. You know, we've been on the air for just a little over half a year, and the response to the show has been overwhelming and humbling, and it's getting some recognition because people like you are listening to the show and talking about it. Just this past week, Time Magazine put Stay Tuned on its list of top 50 podcasts, and just today, New York Times columnist Nicholas Kristof mentioned in his newsletter that Stay Tuned is one of his three favorite podcasts. So if you like the show, rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me, as always, your questions about news and politics. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara. Give me a call at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or send an email to staytuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Kat Aaron, Chris Barube, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jeff Eisenman, and Jake McAbee. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Simply Safe is the home security for right now, when feeling safe at home has never been more important. Simply Safe was designed to be easy to use while protecting your whole home 24-7. Starting at 50 cents a day. Order online easily. Open the box, place the sensors, plug it in, and your home is protected around the clock. No technician has to come to your house. Head to simplysafe.com slash preet and get free shipping and a 60-day money-back guarantee.